Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. So we're looking at a passage today from Genesis chapter 38. And um, I'll just tell you, this is a story, a passage that I've been thinking on for 20 years. Now, a little background just on that. I've, I've been in the Christian community somewhere almost 40 years now, and I've gone to church on many Sundays in those 40 years, and I've never once heard anyone preach on this story in Genesis 38. I, I, I told the story to four friends who, like me, have been in the church world for quite some time And all four of those friends, when I told them the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, they looked at me and said, I have never heard that story in my entire life. And yet this story has spoken to me and continues to speak to me. It's like a story I've never really been able to get away from. And when we announced the Stranger Things series, Immediately, this passage came to mind because I think there's something deep and meaningful and life-giving that's found in this passage. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the point of the story first. And so the point of this story, the point of, of me standing up and sharing with you today, the point of Genesis 38 is this phrase, righteousness is relational. Righteousness is is relational. Now let me give you some background to the story. So we're in Genesis chapter 38. Now it's interesting to note in Scripture that the Joseph narrative or the Joseph saga, you remember Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat, that guy? That story starts in Genesis chapter 37. And so well, just, to, just to kind of give the, the timeline or the people, you know, you know Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac has sons Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob is the one that we follow in the storyline. Jacob has a bunch of sons, and Joseph is the youngest. And Joseph has these dreams about uh, these uh, sheaves of wheat that are bowing down to his sheave of wheat, and wheat and the stars and moon are bowing down to him. And the meaning is really clear to his family and to his brothers uh, that someday his brothers will be bowing down to him. That's the meaning of these dreams. And plus, Joseph was totally being favored by their dad, Jacob, and the brothers hate Joseph, passionately hate Joseph. And so in chapter 37... The story goes, uh, the brothers are out uh, in the far fields. They're taking care of their sheep. This is big, a lot of sheep. This is a big operation. It's a couple days journey. And dad sends Joseph to go check up on the brothers and see how they're doing. He goes to the first place he thinks they are. They're not there. They've moved the flocks to another area called Dothan. So Joseph goes to find his brothers. They see him from a long way off. And immediately when they see Joseph by himself kind of going through the the fields to find him, they say, let's kill him. We should kill him. Yes, let's kill him. Now, they have a better thought. 
and this one comes from Judah, and this is important to know Judah, because we're about to go deep with Judah in the next chapter. Judah says, yes, we should kill him. Wait a minute. Maybe we could make some money off this too. And so not instead of killing him outright, let's sell him into slavery. And there's a group traveling to Egypt nearby. And so they sell Joseph, their brother, into slavery to disappear into the bowels of Egypt, and they never think they'll see him again. And you kind of know the story of this Joseph thing. So chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sent in slavery into Egypt, and all of a sudden we're at chapter 38. And this story is about Judah, and some years have passed. Now, I'm still, I look and see a few young people in the room. I love young people and I love the truth of stories and storytelling. So let me just say, in the story I'm about to relate, I may use some euphemisms that help us understand what is going on in the passage. And I'll try not to make it too obvious because some kids are really smart and they see through this stuff. So follow carefully over the story as I tell it. I regretted picking this passage at one point. So, chapter 38. Judah is the bigwig. This story is about Judah and Judah's family. So he's one of the sons of Jacob. He now has lots of land, lots of possessions. He has three sons. The oldest son is named Ur. And we don't know what Ur did, but the Bible says that he displeased the Lord. He did something or some things that were really not good and says, and so the, the Lord killed him. So Ur is now gone. Oh, I've, Tamar. He's married to Tamar. That's key. So there's Judah, the, the dad, three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar is married to Ur. They don't have any kids yet. So Ur dies. Now, in that culture, in fact, in all the cultures around the ancient Near East, it was really important that you had a family line, that your family line would continue. And so there's a, there's a rule or a principle at that time that if, if Ur dies, then the next son is supposed to share intimacy with the bereaved widow so that she can get pregnant and her family line can continue. It's called the duty of a brother-in-law. And so uh, Judah goes to Onan and says, okay, Ur's dead, so you know what you have to do. I, you, know, you need to be intimate with, uh, with Tamar so that she can get pregnant. And Onan says, sure thing, I'll do that. I'm all in. <laughs> but now you have to understand the dynamics here. In other words, if the estate is going to be split into three sections, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, and Ur's out of the picture, so now the estate's going to be in two sections, and Onan, Onan gets more. In fact, now he's considered the oldest in the family. So does he really want Tamar to have kids? And so I promise, this is in the Bible, chapter 38, they share the act of physical intimacy and then Onan 
leaves right at the end. You could almost say at the climax of his encounter with, with Tamar, Onan leaves and, uh, so that she can't get pregnant. And we don't know how many times he does this, but it gets the idea that it was more than once he kept doing this. And so the Bible says this displeased the Lord greatly, and so Onan dies too. So now Ur is dead, Onan is dead, Tamar still doesn't have children, Sheila's a little too young to get married. But Judah, what he really cares about, you know Judah, what he really cares about is, well, Tamar must be bad news because Ur's dead and Onan's dead and I don't want to marry, I don't want to marry him or have, do this thing with my youngest Sheila. So he turns to Tamar and he says, look, Tamar, Sheila's still a little too young. Uh, you need to just go, go leave and go live with your father back in Midian for a while. And I'll let you know. I'll call you when it's time to get together with Sheila. Don't call me. I'll call you. <laughs> Genesis 38. Okay, so uh, Judah is the same calculating, uh, unrighteous, you could say, just like he did to his younger brother, saying, let's sell him into slavery. He's, he's just calculating, serving himself, unrighteous. This is what he's doing and so Tamar goes to live with her father-in-law, and then word comes to her a little while later that, that Judah is on his way to a town called Timnah for the sheep shearing. And again, you kind of have to know the story or to understand what this means. Sheep shearing, that's a big deal. When you own a lot of land and you have a lot of sheep, if it's time for the sheep shearing, it's kind of like a big party goes on because now the money's going to start rolling in because you're shearing the sheep and you're selling the wool. And, and it's usually harvest time too, so it's a big celebration. So Judah, big man that he is, he leaves to go to his holdings in Timnah to attend the sheep shearing. And when Tamar hears about this, she, she, um, she can I say these words? She dresses up as someone who sells physical intimacy for money and uh, takes off her widow's garments and dresses in this particular way that would be obvious to a passerby. And then she goes to a crossroads at a place called Enaim where Judah's going to be passing by. And sure enough, Judah passes by. And the moment he sees her, I mean, she doesn't say a word to him. The moment that, that Judah sees Tamar, uh, Judah says, I want to be physically intimate with you now. And Tamar says, and what will you give me? And Judah says, I will give you a young goat. And Tamar looks around and says, I don't see any goats. What will you give me as a pledge? And so until he can get a goat, Judah says, well, I guess here you can have my staff and my signet ring and my cord. These are my identifying characteristics. It's like giving someone your wallet, as it were, that says who you are. Here, you can take these. It's just as a pledge until I send back the goat. And then they share the act of physical intimacy right then and there. And then Judah leaves on his way and 
he sends his lackey, a guy named Hira, to come back with the goat and pay off the, the person who, who sells intimacy for money. And Hira comes back. Oh, by the, the story tells us that uh, Tamar, as soon as Judah's gone, she changes clothes back into her widow's garments and she leaves. Hira comes back and says to the townspeople around this crossroads, hey, where's the, where's the woman who sells intimacy for money? Uh, where is she? Because I've got this goat I need to... And they, all, and they all go, what? There's no women like that here. There's never been any women like that here. What are you talking about? So Hira looks all around and decides, well, he can't find anyone. He, he doesn't want people to really know what he's doing, so he, just, they, he and Judah together decide, okay, we're just got to sweep this thing under. We're not going to say anything more about this, and so they drop the matter. Okay, so in our story, we see, uh, we read the scripture. Now, now we're at the conclusion of the story. That cord and the ring and the staff, you know, it's, if you've ever heard the phrase Chekhov's gun, where Chekhov was giving instructions on how to write really good short stories, and the, and the phrase that Chekhov would use is, if a, if a pistol is hanging on the wall in Act 1, make sure you use it by Act 2. So Chekhov's gun is the signet and the ring and the staff. Because as soon as that entered the story, we could say, that's going to come out to be important. And sure enough, it is. And so... Uh, uh, it's word spreads. She, I don't even think she was trying to hide it. So three months later, now it's obvious she's pregnant. I don't think she was even trying to hide it. And finally the people, someone says, you're pregnant, aren't you? And then they report to Judah. And it's Judah himself who says, well, bring her out. And she should be burned for what she's done. And then Tamar, this beautiful, amazing character in Scripture, Tamar, uh, she plays her card. Uh, can you recognize who owns these? I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And then here's the line, the, the line that's just always stuck with me. For 20 years, I've been thinking about this line right here. When Judah says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I, for I did not give her to my son, Sheila. But she is more righteous than I. How, how can that be? I mean, look at all that Tamar did. I mean, uh, and doesn't that seem like really bad stuff? I mean, to, to dress like that and to seduce and to, to do all this trickery and it's and it's sexual too, and isn't that even worse when it's sexual stuff that's going on? Or like that's that's kind of how we tend to think about righteousness and unrighteousness. But right away, Judah, this is the first kind of awakening, I'd say, of Judah. He says, No, no. She is more righteous than I. Now, this word for righteousness in Hebrew, uh, tzedakah, it's all throughout the Old Testament. 
It's a very important word in the, in the Old Testament, and we tend to think of righteousness as kind of a list of rules. And when we think about the Old Testament, we think that the Old Testament was about a whole bunch of rules, and you had to follow the rules, and everything was mediated through rules. We think of the Old Testament as being a bunch of legalism, and that righteousness came through following rules. And what I'm challenged by, and I'm asking each of us to be challenged by, is say, no, righteousness, even and throughout the Old Testament, righteousness is always and forever relational. You can think of the word righteousness like this. What does it mean to do right by and for another person? What does it mean to do right by and for another person. And throughout Scripture, the meaning of righteousness or tzedakah in the Old Testament, it's always in relation to someone. Always. Think about this. If we look at Genesis chapter 15, this goes back to Abraham when he receives this promise from God, the the promise that says you're going to have so many descendants, they're they're like all the stars in the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. You know, he's 100 years old and has no kids, and God makes this promise to him. And the scripture says that Abraham believed God. And then what's the next line? And God credited it to him as tzedakah, righteousness. How is that? How is that that belief? Well, just think for a minute. What does it mean to do right by and for God? What does it mean for us to do right by God? Well, it's got to begin right there. Believe him. Believe God. Think of it this way. I have some relatives in California, and one of them, we call her Aunt Nancy, but really she's my second cousin once removed by marriage, but she's the age of an aunt, and we became really close with Aunt Nancy when we lived in California, and Aunt Nancy, uh, she's wealthy, and in those days, we were in seminary and young life, and we were just barely putting food on the table, and when it would be Nancy's birthday, when I mean wealthy, I do mean like very, very well off, and it's Nancy's birthday, and it's like, well, what do we get? What do we get Nancy for her birthday? It's kind of like saying, what do you get the person who has everything? And you remember that feeling? Like, how do you, like, I don't know what to get. What do you get the person that has everything? And there's only one right answer. You don't try to impress the person. You just give them your heart. What did Nancy really need from us? What's the best gift to give Nancy? It was merely our heart, and we did with joy and with gladness. So now back to God. What do you get the God who has everything? What's the one gift you can give the God who has everything? To believe, to trust, to, to give our heart over to him. Righteousness is always relational. Or think about the Shema, this famous phrase in the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Shema. And in Hebrew, it goes something like this, Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh Ma'od, Yahweh alone. 
Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the special name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh is our God. The other nations, I mean, they've got lots of choices in the ancient Near East on who's going to be your God. It, it could be Bel, or it could be Dagon, or it could be Nego, or Nido, Ishtar. They've got all kinds of choices on who could be our God. But for Israel, Yahweh, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. It's this call to intimate relationship with God. If you look at the old, if you look at the Ten Commandments, okay, well, surely the Ten Commandments are about a bunch of rules, right? That's why we call them the Ten Commandments. But if you just look at them carefully, every single commandment is relational. You know, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other, God, no other gods before me. So that's relational, up and down. Uh, honor your father and mother. That's relational, horizontal. Every commandment is relational. And that's why we say righteousness is also relational. At its heart, at its core, righteousness is relational. What does it mean to do right? What does it mean to be right for and with another person? And it carries over into the New Testament as well. We, the, the greatest commandment, they, they asked Jesus, Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? And what's his answer? Love the Lord God, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the greatest commandment? It's like saying, tell me the rules. What's the, what's the big rule? Like, no, it's not about rules. It's about a relationship. Righteousness is relational. What does it mean to do right by and for another person? And this is why righteousness is relational in Genesis 38. Because Judah did not do right by Tamar. Judah did not do right by Tamar and that's why she is more righteous than he. Now, I'm, I'm going to kind of bring us to a close here. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to make a, a level of response. So I'm giving you a little warning about a level of response. The, a few weeks ago, Mark mentioned the idea of picture and window and mirror. And so let's use that same way of looking at Old Testament stories. It's a really helpful way to look at the Scripture. So when we say that Scripture is a picture, what do we see? So we've just told the story. That's the story is the picture and all that goes on. And, and I'm going to broaden the frame of the story just a wee bit more because it's really important to me and it touches me in my heart. Judah seems to, well, I'll say it this way. In the, Joseph, in the Joseph saga that continues, in the end, Judah becomes the hero among his brothers. Joseph, in, secret, in disguise still in Egypt, basically says, um, this new younger brother, Benjamin, I want you to bring him to me. They do. And, and then he, uh, Joseph, still in disguise, says, okay, you know what? Benjamin is now going to stay with me. You guys go back to, to Canaan. I'm taking your youngest brother. And here in this episode, it's Judah. It's Judah who steps up. It's Judah who speaks to Joseph in disguise. 
speaks to Joseph and says, no, no, take me instead. Take me instead, for it will kill our father if this happens again. For it will kill our father. Take me instead. So the same guy who had sold Joseph into slavery was going to kill him, decided to sell him into slavery to make money at the same time. The same Joseph who sticks it to uh, his daughter-in-law because... uh, I lost my train right there. Sarah shouldn't have said that. <laughs> who, uh, who does this with Tamar, does not do right by Tamar or for Tamar. But here, the next time we see him, it's Judah who's had the transformation. It's Judah who now does right, who does right by his father, who does right by Benjamin. And it's this act of transformation in Judah that causes Joseph in Egypt to reveal himself and restore his family fully. This act of redemption, this act of transformation. So there's a picture. What do we see through the window? What do we see through the window of this story? So picture, window, mirror. Here's something. Real life, real life is messy. The Bible is real life, and real life is a mess. Do we sometimes read stories in the Bible, and we think it's some far-off world, and, it, and it, you know, especially in the Old Testament? I mean, that's just this kind of stuff. It's, you know, I don't even know why I read this or what to make out of it. It's not, it's not the real world. But, man, if you just take 10 seconds and actually think about just if I use the elements in my own family history, uh, um, they're just as much as mess, just as big a mess as this story in Genesis 38 and 37 and 30. I mean, there's nothing in the scripture that's not common to humankind in that day or today. And in my own family history, all the problems that we see here of of uh, families and estrangement and anger and wanting to kill people or actually killing people, even incest and work and other things that are, it's all true. Life is a mess. The Bible is real life and life is a mess, a mess. And here's what we learn through the window and God is still there. And yet God is still there. And in the same way we see God in the scenes and behind the scenes in Genesis 38, can we believe that God is just as much in our lives as well? Just as much in the mix. Life is a mess, and yet God is still there throughout all of the mess. God is still there. Can we see that? Can we believe that through this story in Scripture? And then lastly, the mirror. You know, picture, window, mirror. It's where we, we let the story now speak right back to us, often with a, a form of personal invitation. And this is how I'd like to end our time in the sermon, with a personal invitation. It comes in three parts. It's, a, it's an invitation. What would it mean? What would it mean to make it right with God? What would it mean for you to make it right with God? To practice righteousness. Remember, righteousness is relational. 
And so in relationship with God, what would this mean for you to make it right with God? Now, speaking in a Christian context, so often if someone raises this question, we think that the only answer that can, that can relate to that question, what does it mean, mean to make it right with God, would be, well, believe in Jesus and my sins are forgiven, forgiven now I'm righteous. Well, and that's true. It's absolutely true. But can you see deeper than that? Like right now, I don't know what it is in your life or mine. Well, I do know what it is in my life. What does it mean for you to make it right with God? Now, if you would, if you have a pen or paper, you're not going to turn this in. But I'm going to give you the invitation right now to write a response to yourself. What's one action that would embody making it right with God? I do a lot of teaching in my work environments, and at this point, if someone's not pulling out a pen, I would say I would say to the audience, I'd say, now, if you don't pull out that pen, you know I'm going to call you by name. So I'm just saying, you might pull out a pen. I'm not, I'm not going to call you by name. So this is our first question. We have three. What would it, what would it mean to make it right with God? For whatever in your life right now, what's one one thing that would be doing righteousness by and for God in relationship to God? And secondly, let's make it right in your family. Make it right within your family. Righteousness is relational. And what's what's one thing that you're being invited to do within your family? There's one that Stephanie and I are frequently working on together, and we learned it from Terry Hargrave years ago about there's always an us. In in a marriage, there's a Ron, there's a Stephanie, and then there's this third entity called us. So what does us want to do right now? Now, Ron wants to go play golf, but what does us want to do right now? Well, us may want to... Uh, go play tennis together or take a hike or do some projects around the house. And so this challenge between the two of us is, is what does us want to do? It's a way of practicing righteousness in our marriage, in our family. There's broken relationships across my family for sure. There's plenty of options on one thing I could do to make it right. Doesn't take me long to think of them. Third question, make it right in your community. What's one area that you know you're being invited to make it right? To make it right in your community. And take community however you want to take it. It could be your church community. It could be your neighborhood. It could be your street. It could be your town. It could be any designation you believe to be your community, but the invitation is, what would it look like? What's one thing that would make it right within your community? I'd ask us in going home, keep reading the Old Testament and let God speak to us through these stories. And then here in particular, what does it mean to do righteousness? I would invite you to 
keep that list of three things and now do righteousness. Make it right by and for someone else. Thank you so much. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time and we recognize your presence in the room with us. We pray that your spirit would continue to enliven these words in your scripture and make them real in our lives. And Father, help us now practice righteousness. You've given us the power through Christ to do so. Help us now practice righteousness with you, with those in our family, and with our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.